You're listening to Unite and Heal America with uh, Matt Mattern. I'm your host and our guest today, Bryn Lindblad, Deputy Director of Climate Resolve. So, uh, Bryn, it's, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. And hello to the listeners. Well, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what, uh, what you had, what was your journey to, to get to your current position at Climate Resolve? Sure. I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota, um, where most people have to drive to get around. And um, that wasn't that wasn't quite for me. Um, so I, you know, there's some, there's some twists and turns, but I spent my, my young adult years over in Copenhagen, um, Denmark, where it was a, it was a pretty liberated life, um, getting to bike around everywhere. Um, and that made me a, a pretty big believer that there's, that there's some quality of life, um, improvement to, to not kind of have to drive everywhere. Um, and, from, from Copenhagen came to came to LA um, where you know California is a real leader on climate policy um, and I've, I've always kind of when I see things about the world that are a little out of whack when there's there's pollution happening um, it, it seems like a, a challenge to address right a call to action um, and so uh, climate change is our is I'd say our biggest challenge of, of modern day and so um, it's a it's a great place to be working on it here in California, where there's good kind of political will to to try to to fix it, to solve some things, um, and a lot of a lot of smart people and um, and good, yeah, good good foundation to work with to try to to try to come up with some good climate solutions. So, uh, tell us a little bit about Climate Resolve and and uh, the genesis of that organization and and how it came into being. Sure. Climate Resolve, we are an LA-based uh, nonprofit org that's been around for 11 years now. Um, we we came out of kind of seeing that this, our executive director had a, a, a fellowship that let him um, kind of look at the climate climate change challenge and try to think of a really strategic approach to, to addressing it. Um, and part of that kind of thinking um, saw, you know, it's this, it's this big global challenge, but if you can break it down into how it's affecting us locally, and what are some of the, the things we can do um, locally in our in our backyard here in LA, it starts to become a much more uh, tangible issue to address. Uh, and you kind of, you tap into people's psychological motivation to, to, to want to be part of that solution, um, rather than kind of overwhelming them with this, with this huge global um, issue that, that it's hard to see their place in it. So we kind of Really try to make it um, a local issue and, and and focus on solutions of what what we can do um, as a way to bring people along and to draw them into the movement um, and hopefully everyone sees their place um, and their role that they can play in in helping us um, rise to the times. Well, that's uh, I think that's very important and and just taking action on on a local level and then that kind of leads uh, all of us to to seeing the bigger picture as well, because uh, once you've started to do something locally, you see, oh, how that affects something else in a, in a bigger picture. Um, I, uh, I know one of the things you were talking about, just the walking around and, and the fact that, uh, you know, I, I now live in Venice and, and there's so many things that I can do just walking from my place versus uh, used to have to drive everywhere to go 
to, um, you know, whatever it was, the grocery, this, that, the other thing, and it all adds up. Yeah. And they say like over 50% of trips that people take are under three miles. Um, so it is, some of it is just kind of breaking that habit of, of stepping into the car each time and you need something, but, um, but start to think of, Oh, where can my, where can my feet take me? Where can a bike take me? Or, or hopefully even, um, some better bus service, uh, in the near future that work for people. Yeah. I think that that's, uh, very important. I, you know, I, I really like the fact that, uh, say days when I, or maybe not have to use the car three, four, five days during a week is, is a great feeling. And of course the pandemic kind of, uh, helped, uh, help that along because not going into the office, uh, don't have to drive seven miles to the office, but, uh, tell us a little bit about your work with, uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar when you were on her environmental policy team, what were some of the things that you were working on uh, with her? Sure. Um, yeah, that was that was a stint of mine on, on Capitol Hill, um, working on her environmental legislative team. Uh, so, you know, she's she's a smart cookie, doesn't want to necessarily do just what the Democratic Party tells her to do. Um, so we were doing a lot of background research, helping her prepare for um, expert hearings to, to really kind of inform her about a, about an issue. Um, so we try to help her ask the hard questions to kind of get to the bottom of issues. Um, there was a fair amount of, of meeting and uh, with, with kind of folks on, on both sides of issues and seeing where there might be um, some compromise there. Um, yeah, there was, you know, there was, there was, there was always a lot to work on, whether it was like mining or horse meats or, you know, kind of a lot, a lot of issues would, would, would come to her, her team. Well, I know that she has a reputation of being able to kind of bridge the divide and, and come up with a lot of bipartisan uh, pieces of legis legislation. And that's been effective. That's kind of one of her hallmarks. And I really admire that kind of work because in my mind, that's how we're going to best get to the solutions because uh, making it a partisan issue makes it harder to, to get the, the hard work done. I'm with you. It doesn't need to be a, an us versus them combative zero sum kind of thing. If we can, if we can find where, you know, solutions that, that work for more people, all the better, right? Um, try to bring people in and be part of a, a collaborative solution. Well, tell us a little bit about the things that you're working on with Climate Resolve now and, and what are some of your top priorities? Sure, happy to. So we we kind of, there's, there's kind of two big buckets of our work. Um, one, we look at where climate pollution is coming from and try to, try to cut that source of greenhouse gas um, emissions. Uh, and so we mentioned transportation. That's our that's our largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in California. Um, so trying to get people better options to get around, um, trying to curb some sprawl so that people aren't traveling such long distances, but that they can live closer um, to where they need to be um, and create yeah more more complete communities. Um, that means like having healthy groceries and having childcare kind of all within the neighborhood. Um, they're not having people aren't having to drive as much. That's kind of one big bucket. Um, another big bucket of our work is about um, looking at how climate change is already impacting um, Los Angeles and helping prepare communities for those for those impacts. So they're they're not um, not facing as much vulnerability 
um, yeah, not not disrupted as much. Um, so with climate change, a big thing that that faces us that hits us here in LA is, is heat. Um, so we we you know we they call it a global warming for a reason, right? Um, but over the last hundred years, uh, the average temperature in LA has already risen four degrees Fahrenheit. And we can expect another four degrees within the next 50 or so years. Um, even if we were to cut all our all our greenhouse gas emissions today, um, there's sort of there's still enough up there in the atmosphere that's accumulated that we we've got some more climate impacts coming um, to get to get brace ourselves for. Um, and you know, it's not just that that average temperature that's been on the rise. We also see the the hottest day of the year. Um, we're expecting that to get. 10 degrees hotter by the end of this century. Um, so, you know, there've been some headlines recently, right? 121 degrees in Woodland Hills last summer. And it's, it's hard to even fathom, right? 131 degree day, but, um, but that's what we, we need to be ready for. Um, and, you know, so I can, I can go on, you know, it's not just that one hottest day, there, the number of those hottest days, um, you know, we call those extreme heat days. Anytime it's over 95 degrees, um, the the number of days each year that are that are extreme heat days is going to triple by the middle of this century. Um, so I'm I'm kind of near the Eagle Rock neighborhood. Um, like historically, we've seen like 13 days a year above 95 degrees. That's going up to like 42 degrees. Um, places in the valley like Porter Ranch um, they can expect 100 degree days over over 95 degrees um, so you know we can look at the impacts of that there's there's really um, some some pretty severe consequences to that um, that increase of heat um, whether it be uh, like heat stroke um, people out on the job um, that are that are hit by that heat um, heat fatigue you see it affecting student performance. Um, if, if schools are not air conditioned, if, if, if bus stops aren't shaded and those students are, are um, subject to that heat, their, their school performance goes down. We see workplace accidents um, increase on days of extreme heat. Um, even violent crime uh, is, is spiked on, on hot days. So it's that kind of hot and bothered um, gets people uh, out kind of being aggravated. Um, another thing that that's near and dear to my heart is, is the air quality impacts of those hot days. Um, we've got a bit of a smog problem in LA still. Um, and so for many, you know, for decades, it, the situation had been improving with cleaner cars. Um, but part of what, what produces smog is, is sunlight and heat. Um, and so in recent years, as we've been heating up more, um, that smog has started to, to get worse again. Um, and then there's ways that heat affects people's energy bills if they're having to, to use more air conditioning. Um, and on those really hot days, there's there's some brownouts too if our if our energy grid isn't isn't quite prepared to to be able to handle that increase of energy. Well, that is a, a tremendous amount of things to cover, and I know you haven't <laughs> covered them all, but uh, some some highlights to kind of that come off in my mind as you, as you're talking in terms of we, it's uh, almost like a vicious cycle because when it gets hotter, then we're going to need more air conditioning, which causes more energy, which more greenhouse gases and the, and many of the older air conditioning systems emit a lot of greenhouse gases. So 
that are even more harmful than just the CO2. So uh, we've got to change those air conditioning units to something that's healthier. Um, so they're just uh, an endless amount of problems that result from that, more wildfires, et cetera, et cetera. So um, we, we really have to get, uh, get on these problems, get on them in a serious way. Uh, so after our break, we'll uh, we'll be talking to Bryn uh, about these issues. And so join us here after the break. We'll be back in one minute. This is Matt Mattern, Unite and Heal America, KBC 790. Looking forward to talking to Bryn Limblad, uh, Deputy Director of Climate Resolve, after the break. You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host. And we're speaking to Bryn Lindblad, Deputy Director of Climate Resolve. And Bryn, kind of getting back to what you're talking about with these extreme heat days that we are experiencing currently. And uh, from what you said and many other climate scientists are telling us, it's going to get worse and substantially worse over the next 50 years, even if we uh, do some good work to reduce our emissions. Uh, tell us about the work that you're doing with urban heat islands and uh, how that can help um, with this situation. Sure. Um, yeah. So, you know, as you said, climate change is happening. It's getting hotter. Um, so we can be trying to cut climate pollution at the source and, and be addressing that. But anyways, we need to, we need to be um, preparing ourselves for these hotter days that are coming um, so something called the urban heat island effect um, is kind of, it has to do with how we've, we've built up our cities to have so much um, paved surfaces and hardscapes that, that make, make our urban environments anywhere from like seven to, to in LA, it could be sometimes 19 degrees hotter um, than it, than it needs to be. So that, you know, you can think of um, if you're walking across a blacktop parking lot, you can just, you can feel the heat like radiating up at you. Um, and so that that dark surface, um, it it it, tra it captures the sun rays and then radiates it back out again as heat. Um, and so that's that's part of what's what's causing our our urban heat island. Um, and so you know in LA we've got like like forty percent of LA is covered in asphalt. Um, so there's a lot of of heat trapping um, hardscape there that we can be trying to trying to rework, trying to make it not um, be making our city as hot as, as it is now. So, yeah. <laughs> um, what, uh, what exactly is the, the remedy for that? What are the options to substitute uh, for the asphalt that we have laid down all over the city? Yeah. So, um, LA City's been piloting out a cool pavement program. Um, and so that it's a more reflective coating that goes on top of the street. Um, it makes it lighter colored, kind of like a light gray um, color. Uh, so if if traditional black top asphalt um, absorbs about like 90% of the sun rays and, and reflects only 10%, um, if we look to, to cool pavement products that are being tried today, it's, it's more like um, absorbing only 35% and reflecting um, the other 65%. Um, and we think we can, we could tweak that kind of all the way up to about like 50% reflectivity um, and, um, and really make a, make a difference in cooling. Um, 
So, you know, that that lighter colored surface, the, the cool pavement we've got out there today on the streets, um, I said is about like 35% um, absorbing sun rays, uh, and, or sorry, 35% reflecting um, sun rays. Um, and that, uh, that it makes the, the surface of the road um, about like 10 to up to 30 degrees cooler than an asphalt road. Um, so less heat, radiating out under your shoes, right? As you're walking across that, that pavement. Uh, and they, they predict that if we, were to, if we were to convert over just like 30% of LA's pavement um, to that cool pavement, we would make air temperatures five degrees cooler. Um, so that's kind of enough by, by addressing what our hardscape looks like here in LA, we could, we could make up for the heat that we're getting from climate change. So what would be a cost of converting 30% of our our streets to this alternative asphalt uh, product be? Yeah, we're working on the cost because that's really the the biggest barrier still. But we're we're getting there. Um, you know, they're they're working on a on a slurry right now. It's um, like sixty cents to a dollar per square foot um, for the cool slurry coating, um, and a traditional slurry coating is like. 50 cents to 85 cents. So not that much cheaper. Um, and there's a, you know, there, we're, we're the first city in the U.S. to be doing this cool pavement program. Um, so there is a little bit of, we're hoping to achieve some economies of scale if we can get more of a, of a market demand out there and, and um, yeah, be encouraging the producers of these new products to, to um, lower their cost of production. Um, so well, one... Strategy we've done <laughs> to try to up that demand for it um, is we've reached out and have now um, 20 different cities across the U.S. Um, that have said if they can get a, a cost-competitive cool cool slurry um, that they're prepared to to buy like 70,000 lane miles of that cool pavement over the next 10 years. So we've kind of banded together to to try to um, get that drive that cost down um, and make it. The same cost as, as slurries that are used today. That's uh, that's great work, and uh, I know in reading uh, Bill Gates's book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, he talks about the green premium and what's that green premium for a particular product, and if we can drive that green premium lower, then then it certainly can help us convert to a greener product more quickly. And uh, it takes the objections away from from uh, cost cutters to say, hey, this this is going to be the same or similar price. And there are all kinds of other uh, benefits that result from it. Um, so great work on that front. And one of the things that he talks about is getting governments to be the initial drivers of the conversion to greener products, because once the government kind of establishes, like you said, the demand for a product, then the manufacturers will start producing more of it. But until the demand is created, manufacturers are, are less likely to jump in there and invest and put those early dollars into uh, rolling out these new technologies. So kudos to you for uh, driving the demand on that front because it uh, will have benefits across the country for for all kinds of cities. 
Well, and kudos to the city of LA. Um, Greg Spots has been working dedicated on this from the streets LA um, department. Uh, we've got a good ally over in, in Washington, DC, Kurt Schickman with the Global Cool Cities Alliance, who's also been instrumental in, in recruiting all those other American cities. So it's a, it's a team effort, but um, and underway. <laughs> Well, good, good teamwork. I always like to see good teamwork. It's uh, kind of uh, what we need in this front and, and many others. So what other, what other types of improvements can be made to help cool and uh, reduce this urban heat island effect? Sure. Well, well, trees are kind of the going back to basics. Um, you know, if I said our we've got too much hardscape out there, um, a remedy for that is to try to get more and more greenery in our urban environment. Um, so, you know, there's an effort underway of trying, looking at all the the empty tree wells that are already around LA, where there's there's space for a tree. There was meant to be a tree, um, but they just haven't haven't taken care enough to to maintain those trees um, and trying to trying to get trees planted there. Um, so trees, you know, by by adding in shade and by um, a process called evaporative cooling, um, they really they cool down the the air around them, um, and that could be anywhere from like two to nine degrees um, Fahrenheit cooling. We can get from trees. Um, love we love more trees. Uh, well, I was just uh, I just had uh, the the director of Tree People on the show a few weeks ago, and so she was telling us about the work that they're doing. And I don't know if you've done a work uh, collaborating with them. And, um, and yeah, we've, we've collaborated with Tree People a few times. Um, so it's uh, ongoing. We yeah, no, love the work they do, building building um, multi generational groups of people. You know, there's there's hardly anyone out there who doesn't doesn't like trees. Um, so trying to <laughs> build that base. So. Yeah, I think that uh, the one thing that somebody who's from the Midwest, like myself, uh, from Chicago, and you from Minnesota, you kind of notice when you come to LA, there are less big trees in LA than in Midwestern cities. And certainly, we could, as a as a group, as a community, build out more trees and. Uh, reduce the heat uh, around the city and, and it also makes for a more beautiful city. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we had a project in the community of Canoga park in the Valley um, recently, and they, you know, have some of those really tall, skinny little Mexican palm fan trees too, that, that don't give a whole lot of shade. Um, and so an idea that came out of that community was to plant shade trees in between the, those, any little palm trees so you don't have to we didn't they didn't need to get rid of the palm trees they could just add in some shade trees in between them <laughs> yeah i mean uh the, the little palm trees are kind of iconically la but uh you know some shade trees would be nice too so a little mix of both so uh what what are some of the other things that uh, you're doing to address the urban heat island effect here in la Sure. So other other vegetative surfaces um, also help cool down the city. So if there's ever any like a median in the middle of the road, if that's dirt now, if we can get some growing plants in there, that helps cool it down. Um, helps with with capturing local water supply too, so that when it rains, um, that goes down into our groundwater supply. Uh, besides that, other other shade structures out there. Um, so we've been working on on bus stop shelters. Um, has been a real 
uh, kind of equity issue of ours, um, trying to protect transit riders from that heat. Uh, and things like like awnings on buildings or stretched canvas over playgrounds, um, just getting more more shade out there um, in places where people are trying to be outdoors. Yeah, one of the things that I talked to uh, Cindy Montanez uh, from Tree People, the executive director of that, uh, about was the work that they're doing regarding kind of channeling the water that comes off of our hills and mountains uh, into kind of um, you know, spaces that have are lined with grasses or plants so that there's not as much runoff. Are you doing some of that work as well? Yeah, so we call them bioswales, these areas that are meant to absorb um, water and uh, probably talked to Cindy about it, but with climate change, we're seeing, yeah, the snowpack um, melting quicker. Uh, and so it just, it becomes harder to, to capture that water if it's, a, if it's over a more condensed um, springtime period when we have that, that melted snow water um, running off. And we're also seeing with climate change that precipitation events, when it does rain, it, it, it's getting to be a, a flashier burst, like more rain all at once, um, which again, kind of makes it harder to capture if we've had a, a period of drought that's made the ground really hard and then all of a sudden there's a, a rain burst. Um, so we have to be intentional about like keeping soil healthy with with plant roots down there that, that keep it kind of nicely aerated um, so it's not getting too compacted um, and, and do what we can so that when it does rain, um, we're, we're absorbing that rainwater. Well, I guess the question is kind of how are we going to get the funding to do all that? Because it is a it is a very big project to to build those channels where the water goes down in ditches rather than along the curbs and things of that nature. I mean, I think it's a good investment, particularly given what we're talking about, uh, the heat going up by four degrees in the next 50 years in some place, 10 degrees hotter. Um, you know, or more, what, what are we going to do regarding funding to, to get that work done? Yeah, well, we've really been okay, trying to advocate for multi-benefit infrastructure projects. Um, so we don't, you know, trying to get away from like where your, your street agency is kind of only looking at putting paint down and pavement down. Um, and then a year later, you've got your water agency coming and trying to put in plants. But if we can instead um, put together more holistic projects where, you know, say the, the bike lane is being protected by um, a median that has some plants in it um, and kind of combine those, those, those objectives, those um, metrics together into one project, you can combine the funding sources as well. Um, so. You're listening to uh, Unite and Heal America. Uh, my guest, Bryn Lindblad, Deputy Director of Climate Resolve. Uh, we'll be back with Bryn in just one minute. Uh, talking about what we can do to help L.A. St stay cool in the coming century. So uh, we'll be back in just a minute. You're listening to Unite and Heal America. This is Matt Mattern, your host with uh, Bryn Lindblad, Deputy Director of Climate Resolve. Uh, Bryn, you were telling us uh, a bit about, you know, the problems that we're having with increasing levels of heat, particularly at the urban level. Um, what are you doing legislatively to help address those issues? We've sponsored legislation this year, um, AB 585, authored by Assemblymember Luce Rivas, um, which is, it's passed the Assembly and we're waiting on the Senate to take it up for a vote. Um, but the point of that legislation is to 
to create a, an authority at the state level um, that would oversee uh, metrics on heat uh, and funding programs. Because right now it's it's not something that anyone's really taking responsibility for. Um, and so if you're not if you're not measuring something and you're not tracking progress, um, it's it, it's hard to sort of convince local groups to um, to take it on as their responsibility. So how will uh, the measurements and the responsibility flow, assuming this piece of legislation is enacted? Yeah, well, um, the first step, I think, is, is just getting a grip on kind of what, what urban heat islands are out there, um, what what does heat exposure look like for different communities and and um, disparities that, that exist nowadays, um, and then trying to structure some, some funding programs like, like um, urban greening programs or um, cool surfaces, those like high albedo surfaces, trying to, trying to support um, some installations in those, in those communities of greatest need. So in terms of funding, will, is there a funding piece of this legislation or is it uh, just a first step in terms of measuring and determining where these heat islands uh, exist around the state? Yeah, it's a first. It's a first step of getting an agency to start looking at it and measuring it. Um, you know, there's there's funding right now about climate resilience that's being looked at at the state level, but unfortunately, a lot of that is going um, not to urban areas. Um, and so we're kind of we're trying to stand up for um, how climate is affecting people, um, and especially sort of our most most vulnerable, disadvantaged communities. Um, and trying to see about um, getting some of that like climate resilience funding um, directed towards addressing heat. Well, that uh, sounds like a very worthy cause. So <laughs> everybody should uh, call their senators and talk to them about AB 585 to let them know that uh, this is a worthwhile piece of legislation that we should uh, be moving forward on. Because as uh, Bryn is, is saying, I mean, the... Uh, the bottom line is if we don't measure something, then how can we determine how good or bad of a job we're doing with dealing with it? And clearly um, having heat at such a high level does cause death, particularly of seniors and vulnerable populations that don't have uh, access to good air conditioning and uh, shelter during these high heat events. So, um, so we need to we need to address these issues. Are there any pieces of federal legislation that are out there that are dealing with this issue of urban heat islands? Yeah, you know, at the federal level, the the momentum that's underway um, right now is to start naming heat waves. Um, get the National Weather Service to to be calling a heat wave a heat wave and giving it a name, similarly to how tropical storms and hurricanes um, are named, and you you see it on the news as a way to alert people that um, that danger is coming. Uh, as you mentioned, they're often, it are, is sort of elderly people that, that folks don't think to, to check on them to make sure they're okay in their apartments. And so trying to trying to raise some visibility of, um, of yeah, the, the danger of heat waves. Um, people, people don't know, but um, it's kind of, it's the silent killer. More people die from, from heat than all other um, natural weather phenomena combined. So hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, um, you name it. Um, more people are dying every year from heat. I, yeah, I just read that statistic, and it was pretty shocking that uh, that uh, heat waves were so deadly. And because you know the 
hurricanes and the tornadoes and things like that get all the, the ink uh, and heat waves kind of don't. I mean, you'll every, every so often you'll hear a little bit about that, but we're talking about uh, tens of thousands of people dying um, each year from, from heat waves, which is a, it's a pretty substantial amount. Yeah, we've been working too to try to get um, local health departments to be turning around those um, those statistics on on emergency room visits due to heat and and deaths due to heat. Um, again, just to kind of get a little bit more more transparency in in real time um, about how heat is affecting people. Now, another issue that uh, your organization has been working on is working with bus shelter. Um, and uh, getting contracts regarding heat exposure for people who are sitting out there waiting for buses. And I guess on a related front, um, I just feel like maybe there's something we can do to, to subsidize further or make our transit service free, particularly for low income folks. Uh, it would have a, a big benefit to reducing the amount of cars on the road reduce the amount of greenhouse gases and, and have, uh, it would also probably help uh, lower income folks not have to have a car, which is pretty expensive in terms of use of gas and insurance and all the rest. Yeah, um, well, let me start with the first part of that. Um, I'm pr we are pretty proud. We've been advocating that this next um, round of, of bus shelter provision in the city of LA um, will be based off heat exposure and um, how many transit riders are there at the stop waiting. Um, whereas the last the last round of the contract was more based off like where where ad revenue could be generated because um, there's there's those ads on the side of bus shelters, right? But we're trying to trying to have it um, be protecting the people that need it. Uh, to your point about free transit, that's something there's there's some there's some buzz and some excitement about the possibility of that. Um, just realizing that that those fares that are collected um, on on buses and trains, it, it's such a small part of of what it takes to run transit service. Um, that if we could, you know, just make it a little bit easy breezier, that that people who um, you know don't don't have to kind of try to figure out how to how to navigate um, paying for their transit fare. Um, if we can make it something that you see a, a bus going by every five minutes and you can just pop on it um, and take it a few stops, um, start to kind of yeah make make transit a more um, accessible option for people. That's, that's part of the vision. Well, it certainly get people out of their cars and for even people who aren't low income people just kind of get in the habit of, oh, I can get on this bus and go here or go there. And, you know, when I lived in Chicago, it was certainly something that was more in the culture. I think out in L.A., it's it's not kind of in our day to day experience so much. So anything we can do to encourage that to me seems like a, a great investment. We're spending so much on on other forms of environmental, um, you know, legislation and, and programs to roll out uh, energy efficient things, uh, giving away transit on on buses seems like a, a pretty obvious solution to uh, to one of our big problems. Yeah, I'm. I'm hoping we get to the point too where we can have some more bus only lanes out there across LA. Cause if you've got um, buses that are able to kind of whirl past the transit or the traffic, the cars that are stuck there, 
um, that starts to be a pretty appealing option to people who are who are still in cars too. Let's see if we can we can solve some of the, the congestion that way, draw people out of their cars. Well, um, one other program that I wanted to talk to you about was your tree ambassador program for uh, green gentrification. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that, and then we can come back to it uh, after the break. Sure, and um, I'll, I'll, I'll correct you a little bit there. We're kind of trying to counteract uh, fears of green gentrification with this uh, tree ambassador program. Um, <laughs> sometimes neighborhoods can, can fear that, that adding in trees will, will make it kind of too, so, too nice, that it'll increase rents and, and drive out people that are living there. Um, and so we're, we're trying to address that by um, hiring tree ambassadors who are living within the community. Um, so it becomes more of, a, of an effort that's sort of done by and for that community and less of like a scary thing that outsiders are trying to do. That sounds like a great plan. So uh, you're listening to Unite and Heal America. This is Matt Mattern, your host, KBC 790. Uh, we've been speaking to Bryn Lindblad, Deputy Director of Climate Resolve. Uh, we'll be back in just a minute talking to Bryn about uh, ways that we can help uh, address climate change here in LA. You're listening to Unite and Heal America with your host, Matt Mattern. My guest today, Bryn Lindblad. We're talking about environmental issues that are facing LA and facing the nation. Uh, one thing, Bryn, that I'd like to talk to you about is the Green New Deal. And as I believe uh, some commentators have talked about it, uh, that it would cause a green tech revolution or green jobs revolution. Um, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, I've been following it as there, there are just uh, scads of new companies that are popping up dealing with environmental issues. Some of them old line companies, some of them brand new. And uh, what uh, what's your you know, take on all of this. Sure. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, we're trying to, you know, see a, see a different sort of investment pattern by government than, than we've seen in the past. Um, so, for example, freeway widening and new freeways is something we don't think government dollars should be going towards anymore. Um, but you kind of have to bring along um, the labor that, that's been used to getting those contracts in the past um, and, and try to help them see what's in it for them. Um, if we can have a shift in investments too. Um, so, you know, we've been talking about these more complete streets where there's where there's bus lanes and bike lanes and there's trees and there's bioswales. Um, so there, you know, needs to be some like reskilling um, done there and getting people um, primed to be able to do that new work. Um, but there's certainly no no shortage of jobs in um, in trying to to implement some of the the climate solutions that we advocate for. Well, I think that's it's always a fear that uh, one new industry is going to put another old industry out of business. I mean, the buggy whip manufacturers pretty much all went out of business when we got cars 120 plus years ago. And so we're going to see some dislocations in the changes in our economy, but it doesn't all have to be for the bad. And I understand some of the anxiety and fear of people who are in some of these old line industries that have had their jobs for decades. Um, so we do have to address those. And uh, do you see uh, the government uh, leading the way on that front or do you see it uh, being led more by private industry? 
or yeah, government. <laughs> I think it's both. There's, you know, the government has some um, workforce development programs. California has a, a high roads job um, focus that's that's trying to make sure it's, it's high quality jobs. And um, so if people, if people are kind of have earned a, a seniority status in their old um, place of employment, kind of trying to transition them into a new um, career path where they they maintain some of that um, like dignity that they've built up for themselves and that at seniority too, um, and not expecting them to kind of to start again at the bottom of the totem pole, so to say, um, in entry level positions. Uh, so there's there's some government programs, yeah, working on that that workforce development and retraining. Um, but it's it, it'd be great if industries also kind of can offer some um, paid apprenticeships and you know trying to help people um, develop skills to be to be their future workforce. Well, of course, uh, they have an interest in, private industry has an interest in developing that talent pool because they're going to need it uh, to have a functioning company. And, and we've seen that in the past is that companies have stepped forward and trained workers for the new industries of the future time and time again. So I think where there's demand for those jobs and demand for that that work, businesses will step in and and train people uh, appropriately. Um, but uh, where where are you seeing the uh, your your work as far as conservation and and climate sciences uh, in in the coming years? Uh, where are you going to be focused? Yeah. Um... Well, you know, we, we didn't talk much about it today, but wildfire is another uh, impact of climate change that's really on the rise. And um, and so kind of trying to, to contain some of the sprawl development that would encroach on um, like wildfire prone lands and trying to yeah reduce that that interface between people and, and wildfire prone lands, because that's it's, it's those people being in that um, in that area that, that causes sparks and sort of ignites those fires in the first place. Um, so we've been trying to advance, you know, there's concepts like like an urban growth boundary, like a buffer between where you have your your development and then where there are those more wildfire prone lands. Um, so that's a that's a concept we could we could stand to adopt um, more here in Southern California. Um, we've got some some effort underway um, with the Tejon Ranch, um, trying to trying to develop some wildfire uh, risk mitigations there as well. Well, in terms of increasing the density along transit lines, I know that uh, there's been a lot of work done at the state legislature to try to get bills passed, but unfortunately they haven't passed. Is there greater hope that uh, something like that will pass in this uh, legislative session? You know, it's it's hard to say at the state level. Um, there's been a lot of communities that have kind of developed their own approaches um, to, to inclusionary housing and, and ways to kind of incentivize um, affordable housing provision. And, um, and so that, from my perspective, that seems like where kind of the, some of the roadblock has been at the state level um, is how to, how to honor um, those local solutions that communities have come up with already. Um, but, you know, something we we work um, also in the in the community plan updates that are happening right now in the city of LA, where where some zoning um, is is being reevaluated and trying to see if you know there's an opportunity to 
to upzone some areas for more dense um, and affordable housing. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a, that's a realm where you've really um, seen the engagement, the, the community members that have, that have come out and had the time to engage in that process in the past um, are, tend to be a little bit more your, your, your wealthy landowners who kind of um, are, are interested maybe in, in keeping like single family housing the way it is and, um, and that, you know, preserving that kind of scarcity of housing um, helps their, their land value um, stay up. So we've, we've been trying to make sure we find ways to like bring more renters into those um, community engagement discussions too. And you, you try to represent kind of the full, the full range of Angelinos um, who could potentially benefit from, from having more housing where near, near where they need to be. In terms of uh, what we're going to do with this $75 billion surplus of uh, on the state level and uh, what were, what you would recommend we do with that and, and as well as for environmental purposes, as well as the uh, city of LA budgeting, are there any particular programs that you're you're targeting for increased funding in the coming year or coming years? Sure. Um, well, we've been we've been advocating trying to shift transportation spending um, towards more active transportation, supporting walking and biking. Um, towards more transit service um, has been a hard one to get funded. Uh, there's been kind of a bias towards like capital projects and, and buying buses, but not as much towards towards paying bus operators to drive those buses. Um, yeah, you know, um, resilience hubs is something we've been um, starting to launch too, which is kind of like a um, cooling center 2.0, you know, more like a community center kind of space that people are used to frequenting. Um, because we've seen those those cooling centers haven't been um, widely used in the past. Um, those are a few of the things we've been we've been supporting. Well, certainly uh, these are topics that uh, we are all having to deal with as Angelinos and uh, living down here in Southern California. All of us are are affected by the wildfires every year. So something that we need to keep our eye on. Uh, Bryn, thank you for being on the program and telling us about the great work that you're doing with uh, Climate Resolve. And uh, tell us uh, how people can uh, connect with your organization as we uh, wind up the program here on Unite and Heal America. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me, Matt. Um, Climate Resolve, you can sign up for our, our monthly newsletter on climateresolve.org. Uh, we do some some action alerts from time to time, um, asking people to use their voice to to support uh, local climate action. Um, follow us on on Twitter, Instagram. I think soon enough we might be on TikTok too. Okay, well that sounds great. Thank you again, Bren, and look forward to having you back on the program at some time in the future. Thank you for highlighting such an important issue. Appreciate it. Well, you're listening to KBC 790. This is Matt Matter. Come join us next week with uh, Unite and Heal America.